I welcome you all again to our study of the uh, epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We are in chapter 2 of Philippians, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13, which are packed. I mean, we could have spent another whole session on these, but I thought it good for us to at least uh, go over them and get the, the basics of what Paul is teaching us there and not spend too much time in just a couple of verses because, after all, we'd like to get through the entire uh, epistle and to do that in good fashion. So welcome, glad you're here with us, and let's begin again with prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can address you as our Father, for you have brought us into your family, and we thank you, Lord, that because of the work of our Savior Yeshua, you have drawn us to yourself, you have adopted us as children, as sons and daughters, into your family, and we have the hope and the assurance of eternal life with you. And so, Father, we bless you for that, and we thank you for all of your love to us. We pray that you would help us as we study your word to be able to apply it to our individual lives in our uh, respective locations and homes. We pray, Father, that our lives would shine brightly in a dark world for your glory and for your greatness so that others might likewise seek you. So, Father, we bless you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of studying it. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would open your word to us individually as well as together tonight as we study. In Yeshua's name, I pray. Amen. We're going to read the second chapter of Philippians again, as we always do. We're going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV, tonight. So, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in the Messiah Yeshua, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Messiah I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Yeshua Messiah. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the sake of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. All right, so we're starting in at verses 12 through 13, and uh, this obviously fills out where we ended last week with verse 11. And he continues to uh, talk about the fact that our being drawn to the Lord, our coming to faith, in all of the different means that were used to bring us to a place of faith in Yeshua, all of this was nonetheless the work of God from the very beginning. And I know that there are those who are distressed with uh, various terms that's used, like Calvinistic or uh, sovereign grace or some of these kinds of terms. But the reality is that beyond systematic theology, or shall we say long before systematic theology, the scriptures were clearly laid down with this truth that God is the one who initiates and God is the one who brings about the ability not only to seek him but to believe in him and to receive from him the life that he promises by faith in Yeshua. And these two verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, are replete with this doctrine, with this teaching. And remember, doctrine just means teaching. We should understand and hold the doctrines of the Scriptures very dearly because they are the very foundation of our faith and who we are and what we hope for and our hope is true because we know that the Word of God is true. And so I come back again to one of the solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura in the Latin, only Scripture as the final and ultimate basis or foundation for our faith and for how we live our faith out, or some would say our faith and our practice. We might say halakha, how we walk. Halakha is just a good Hebrew word meaning our walk, which is a good biblical word. We talk about the walk of faith in the Bible. And these verses are clear 
as to God's sovereign work in bringing each one of us in our own individual way and situations and so forth to be His. Even as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4, 5, and 6 that He predestined us to be sons and daughters. That is, He predestined us to be adopted children into His family even before the universe was created. And so I hope that, I know that that's some, for some people it's a very difficult uh, doctrine of the Scriptures, but I hope that you recognize that uh, what I'm teaching here, I teach firmly on what is based in the Scriptures. It's not just one uh, theology as over against another. We're seeking to know what the Scriptures teach on this very important doctrine of God's sovereignty in relationship to our salvation. So, verse 12 and 13, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. I mean, just at the beginning, you can see. Why are we to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Because we don't have the ability to bring it about. It is God who is at work in us. We only can please Him as we gain strength from Him. And He has promised that all those who are His, He will give that strength. But we have to cooperate with Him. So the opening words of verse 12 starts out in the New American Standard Bible, So then, translate the single Greek word, hoste, which means for this reason, or therefore, which connects the previous context, all of, of chapter 1, verses 27, up through uh, 2, verse 11, is one component. It's to Paul's concluding exhortation for this specific portion of the letter. In other words, he's saying, because of all of this, so then, as a result, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you. The similarity between chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 12, our verse, caused these two verses to act as bookends, thereby framing this passage, 127 to 211, as a cohesive unit, with verses 12 to 13 containing Paul's concluding exhortation. So you can see how nicely Paul has uh, done that. And this is common in Scripture. It's common in, in Paul's works. Uh, it's common in the Tanakh. That when you find something that's said twice, and there's, and there's uh, Scripture in between, it's like it's packaging it with bookends so that it is seen as a unit. Look at uh, 127. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, I've underlined on your uh, notes, on your handout, the things that are obviously similar. In our verse, chapter 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, doesn't that correspond with conduct yourselves in a way worthy of the gospel? That would be obedience. 
And then he says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Even as he said at the beginning of this larger section, chapter 1, verse 27, whether I come to see you or remain absent. And then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which fits perfectly with uh, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So given the similarities of these two verses, causing them to act as bookends that frame the text between them as expressing the apostles' intended meaning, enables us properly to interpret Paul's meaning for verses 12 and 13. In other words, striving together for the faith, seeking to walk in the ways that please the Lord. So then, my beloved. Paul uses the term my beloved, which is simply the word agape, but in the plural, my loved ones, to emphasize that he knows with certainty that those who made up the core of the Philippian community were, in fact, true believers, for they are first beloved by Yeshua, and as a result, share the love of God by living lives of righteousness, which includes caring for each other. What did Yeshua teach? We read this in the Gospel of John. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? As you love, or if you love one another. Loving each other is to be a hallmark of the communities that are formed around the person of Yeshua. And this fits perfectly with just the verses before, as we read. Consider others more important than yourself. Go out of your way to serve one another. That's the expression of love. So when he says, my beloved, he means those who are loved by God as he is. I suppose this is one of the most difficult things for us to do in community, is to constantly keep that in our attention, that we are to love one another. That means we don't tear each other down behind each other's backs by engaging in gossip or Lashon That means we seek to help one another, even if it's tough love, where we, we help people see where they need to make a change and so forth. But we do that with the expectation that they will, as God enables them. So, that's a wonderful way to start off these two verses as Paul refers to his fellow believers as beloved ones, just have you, as you have always obeyed. So to love one another is one of the primary evidences of being born again unto a new life in Messiah. The Philippian believers express such divinely energized love by sending Epaphroditus to Paul in order to bring those things which he otherwise would lack as a prisoner in a Roman prison. Remember, we mentioned in previous sessions that, as far as we can tell by the history of Rome, that the Roman prisons, they did not give the prisoners what they needed. That was expected to be given to them by family members or friends outside of the prison. And to give them food and clothing and, and the, the, the things that were necessary for them. And, of course, the uh, Philippian community did that by sending Epaphroditus with things that would aid Paul in his life as he was imprisoned. So, this was an expression of loving one another, and Paul brings that to the fore. But the very fact that they sent Epaphroditus with provision for Paul indicates that they were acting in unity to provide Paul's needs. 
In other words, it wasn't just a few here or there that were doing this and sending out Epaphroditus. They all were in agreement. There was a whole community that wanted to help Paul. As Yeshua himself teaches us, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's John chapter 13, verse 35. It is important to note that Paul considers the norm, the normal, sanctified life of a true believer in Yeshua as that which is marked by obedience to God's revealed will. It is a life that is marked by obedience to God's word, which includes genuine repentance when one disobeys, that is, the true mark of a believer in Yeshua. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, Yeshua said, if you love one another. Isn't that obeying what God said? And he says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. True obedience flows from a changed heart, that is, the inner working of the Ruach in the believer's life, and the yielding of one's will and actions to conform to that which pleases the Lord. The Spirit of God will always lead us and urge us to do that which honors the Lord. The Spirit of God will never lead us to do that which is contrary to the righteousness of God. So Paul's point here is that the Philippians were not acting like believers just to please Paul or to receive his personal approval. They were not putting on the cloak of religion when Paul was in their midst but returning to their own ways when he was away. The primary motivation for seeking to help Paul was to fulfill the very words of Yeshua himself and to honor him first and foremost. Right? Care for those who are amongst you. The one who teaches is worthy of double honor. Uh, You know, the scriptures teach us. That had to be at least a a well-known understanding amongst the early uh, people of the way. And so their caring for Paul was uh, an expression of their obedience to the Lord. Surely they were grateful for Paul's ministry in bringing them the gospel. But the proof of their genuine obedience was that they remained faithful and obedient to the truth as taught and exemplified by Yeshua himself, even when Paul wasn't in their midst anymore. They were not putting on the cloak of religion when Paul was in their midst, but returning to their own ways when he was away. (laughs) You kind of see this and hear hear about this in various situations amongst uh, various communities. I know that there have been times in my past when I had conversations with people who were uh, very faithfully part of the Roman Catholic Church. And when a special uh, bishop or uh, someone higher up in the church was coming, then all of a sudden the attendance was double what it normally would be. Was it so that you could impress the one that was coming or you just wanted to see what he was like or what? But that's playing religion. That's not acting out of a heart of love to God for what he has done for me. It is clear that religion in and of itself is not enough. For apart from having Yeshua as the primary focus and motivation in one's life, acts of, quote, religious piety become man-made and self-exalting even if this is denied. 
The real test of one's religious fervor is how one lives when others aren't watching, and even more, how one lives and acts in the context of persecution or societal disfavor. It's amazing, isn't it, what we read about that's happening with this church up in Canada, how the pastor of the church was uh, jailed for, I think, 23 days. It might have been more than that, but when he got out, the government put uh, fencing all the way around, tall fencing all the way around the church property so no one could use it, and they're guarding it with uh, uh, officers of the law and not allowing anyone to come in. And so that church community are meeting underground, somewhere that nobody uh, knows or announces. Is that what we would do, given a similar situation? It seems as though in our very modern world, um, especially in a society that is quite wealthy compared to other countries, that we don't put being together as a community, sometimes as a very high priority. Almost anything can disrupt our uh, going to come together on a Shabbat. And uh, what has to happen for us to begin to understand how important it is for us to be together? Now, I know there are some of you that may be listening here who don't have a community uh, that you can attend because there's nothing even within reasonable range of where you live. But I'm talking to those who could. There could be a place where they could get together, even if it's just with a few. And make that an important part of your week, of caring for each other and upholding each other, praying for each other, meeting each other's needs, and letting the love of God be seen amongst you so that others could see it as well. Have we lost that in our modern world? Well, in the ancient world, this was the place that you were able to have true fellowship, and it's true now. Sometimes I think that when we have a very easy life, financially and so forth and so on, we take some of the most important things for granted. I hope that as we study this epistle to the Philippians, because Paul regularly is talking about the need for caring for each other, for upholding others is more important than ourselves, as meeting each other's needs and seeking to to build each other up in the faith. That ought to be our perspective. Well, for Paul, the Philippian believers had demonstrated the reality of their commitment to Yeshua as a life of faith in him because they continued to strive even much more for what would please their Savior even when Paul was no longer with them to observe their living out their lives of faith within the believing community. For even though Paul had left their community, they continued to grow even more fervent and with greater intent to live in a way that honored the one they had come to know as their Savior. Once again, I see in these two verses that Paul makes it clear what is the true motivation for obedience to the Lord. The true motivation ought to be to honor and glorify Him. If He loved us in this way, how much more should we love Him as well by loving each other as He teaches and commands us to do? Shouldn't we do everything in our lives to honor Him? 
and we can do that by uh, doing yard work. We can do that by uh, doing things that are uh, entertainment, uh, as long as it's uh, honest, good entertainment, and not containment of the world. Uh, we can do that in our jobs, in our work, in our work a day, whether it's at home or whether it's somewhere else. We can do that in our relationships, and we can do that in our communities. We ought to do all things to the glory of God. But Paul likewise teaches us here that we should never be fully and finally content with the level of sanctification to which we have individually attained. We've never reached the mark where we have no further to go when it comes to sanctification. What is sanctification? It's being set apart to the Lord. To be set apart from those things He hates and to be given fully to those things that He has given us to do and to love. So, we should never think we've arrived. We always have more to accomplish. Thus, in exhorting the Philippian believers, he likewise exhorts us in this inspired text. For we too must ask ourselves what motivates us to act in accordance with God's commandments and teachings. Is our primary motivation to honor the one who has given his life for us? Or is it that we might personally be accepted by others or seem to be worthy in their eyes? I know that there have been times when I've been in communities and churches and so forth where it seems quite apparent that some people are doing all these wonderful things for the church. But they want everybody to know that they're doing it. Are they doing it for the honor of the Lord? Or are they doing it so that others will hold them high up in their estimation. That's what I'm talking about here. If he's the one who gave his life for us, is it not right that we personally be seen as giving all the glory to him? We want people not to look so much at us as valuing him, the one we all serve. True perseverance in the ways of righteousness must be energized and strengthened by a genuine and growing desire to please the one who has redeemed us. That ought to be our primary motivation for helping each other. Why? When we help each other, when we care for each other, we're glorifying Him. That's what He told us to do. When we uh, attend to the needs of the community, when we show up and, and, and be part of what's going on, when we add our voice to the voices of others in praise and worship. We're doing that in order to honor God. To have the mind of Messiah, as Paul teaches us in the previous context, verse 5, is to live a life of service to Him first and foremost. A life that seeks to honor Him, pointing others to Him and not to oneself. So then he goes on to this most famous and some would say infamous phrase because it's very difficult to understand at times work out your salvation with fear and trembling the word order of the Greek puts the phrase work out your salvation last in the clause literally it says with fear and trembling each one salvation work out <laughs> with fear and trembling your own salvation work out Thus, we must first ask what Paul means by fear and trembling as it relates to our life of faith, that is, our salvation granted to us by God's grace. 
Well, the Greek word phobos, fear, when used in the context of fearing God, very often carries the sense of deep reverence. That is, a growing realization of the utter holiness and majesty of God in contrast to one's own finite nature, as well as the ongoing struggle against the sinful nature. So when it says we're to fear God, it doesn't mean we're afraid of Him. Now, there is a sense in which something with with great strength, it, you're, you're more careful around it, right? When I had my print shop uh, years ago, and uh, I bought a very large press, a printing press. It was, I, I think it was 12,000 pounds. Uh, it had to be brought in, of course, with large equipment, and then it had to be leveled. Because if it wasn't level, then it would rock, and that would wear, wear out the machine very quickly. And, of course, I had to have a professional come in and do the leveling. And I noticed that the man was missing three fingers on one of his hands. And I presumed that perhaps he had lost uh, those fingers in the military, perhaps in the war. And so I asked him, I said, if you don't mind me asking, how did you lose your fingers? And he looked at me very carefully and he said, in a printing press exactly like this one. He told me. (laughs) He said, are you going to be the pressman on this press? I said, yes, I am. He said, let me tell you something. If you get your hand caught between these large rollers when it's running at full speed, it won't stop the press until it gets to your neck, and you'll lose your arm. And I can tell you, every time I pushed that button to start the big press rolling, I remembered his words. That press was beautiful. It did the most fabulous work. We could print colored, four-color, everything on it. It was our primary press for the whole print shop. It was excellent. It was well, well built. But one could also understand its power. So in one sense, when we fear God, we recognize that all that, and anything that He desires is within His ability. And He doesn't change. And when we stand in awe of him, there's a certain sense of of that uh, wonder and and, uh, amazement at his greatness. There's something wrapped up in what we call fear in that. It's not that we're afraid of him, but we recognize his utter power. But generally speaking, fear means to honor. It carries that idea of deep reverence. That is, a growing realization of the utter holiness and majesty of God, in contrast to one's own finite nature, as well as the ongoing struggle against the sinful flesh. This, by the powerful working of the indwelling Ruach, establishes a growing desire to please God in all aspects of life, enabling the believer to grow in faith and in dependence upon God, that he will enable a growing victory over the flesh, as one more and more yields oneself to him. He is the one from whom everything good comes. And when you really are experiencing genuine love from someone, even another person, it changes the way 
you act towards them. And their love changes you, right? When we're genuinely loved, it changes us. Why? Because we want to desire to do what is best for that person who loves us. And we are grateful. How much more, then, should we love God, who sent His Son, who gives us His Spirit, who brings all good things to us? And He enables us to gain victory over the flesh. In other words, He enables us to obey Him. In this way, our deep reverence for who God is and what He has accomplished for us in Yeshua continues to grow and become the controlling factor in our life more and more. We don't want to grieve Him. We don't want to bring His name into disrepute. Why? Because we have experienced His love. Second, the growing reverence for God is coupled with trembling, and that's tromos, which is obviously used to denote an outward sign of a deep and substantial reverence or fear. The two words, fear, phobos, and thromos, are used together four times in the apostolic scriptures, and I've given them to you, and they're all in Paul. <laughs> 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, and our text here in Philippians. When considering these, it is clear that fear and trembling were used as a pair of words, and sometimes we call that hendiatus. It's two words that are connected with the word and, and they essentially come together as a unit to give one idea. It is clear that fear and trembling were used as a pair of words to denote a proper and acceptable attitude which results in proper actions. This is particularly seen in 2 Corinthians 7.15 where we have these two words used together in which Paul thanks the Corinthian assembly for receiving Titus whom Paul had sent to minister to them. He says, His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Well, they weren't afraid of Titus. But it was two words put together to say they were in awe, that here was someone that had been sent by, by the Apostle Paul himself, and that he had undergone probably some hardships to come to them, and they were grateful. And that's what the text means. Thus, it is seen that fear and trembling does not necessarily imply an ongoing trepidation or fear of being rejected. In our text, fear and trembling would primarily emphasize a life perspective that constantly increases in one's appreciation for and awe of God's infinite sovereignty, His holiness, and love. And then we come to this more difficult phrase work out your own salvation. Now you can see I've put the word own in brackets. I'll explain that momentarily. It's not in the New American Standard Bible. It is in some of the others. As one might expect, there are those who, having isolated this phrase by itself, have taken it to mean that in some measure one's eternal salvation is in some ways earned by one's good works. You're the one that works out your salvation. But of course, this would not only be contradictory to the whole scope of the scriptures, but also contrary to what Paul himself teaches. 
For instance, Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. What does this tell us? You can't earn your salvation. The one who does not work, but believes. What does that tell you? Faith and works are not on the same level when we're talking about being saved. Now, works are the result of faith, but they do not gain one's salvation. And of course, the well-known Ephesians 2, 8-9, through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one may boast. Now the question is, as we've talked about it before, is in that second clause, and that not of yourselves, what is not of yourselves? What To what does the word that refer? Well, it could refer to grace, or it could refer to faith. The problem is that in the Greek, it can't uh, uh, pertain just to one or the other, because the word that is in the neuter gender, whereas grace and faith are both in the feminine gender nouns within the Greek, and you have demonstratives, like the word that, must agree in gender when it is attached to a single word. So what does it mean? Well, the grammarian, the Greek grammarians have taught us that when you have a situation like that, it means that both of them are summed up in the word that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and both of these, grace and faith, are not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's God's grace that gifts a person with the ability to believe. It's not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. You can't say, well, I, I was smart enough, I was worthy enough to believe. No. What you're given, you can't take credit for. And again, in Titus 3.5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. I mean, isn't that the whole heart of the scriptures when it comes to the gift of salvation? We weren't saved by God because we were better than others. He gave to us what we never deserved, and that was his forgiveness. And that was a matter of his grace, and he called upon us to accept it. And he even gave us the means to do that. What is more, those who would think that Paul is teaching eternal salvation to be, in some measure, obtained by one's own good works, apparently have failed to read the next verse, for as we shall see, it is clear that both the desire to say yes to God, as well as the ability to please him by one's life, is attributed to the divine working of God himself. And so, those that isolate this work out your own salvation haven't read the very next verse or don't want to because it's obvious that it's not talking about me doing something to gain God's favor. What then is the import of Paul's words in this verse? What are we to learn from the divinely inspired admonition to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? It is first and foremost that God's eternal salvation for all those he has chosen to be his 
is comprised of both justification, which means what? God declaring us not guilty. God declaring us righteous. And then sanctification, which is what? Becoming more and more set apart to God in holiness, and thus from sin. Becoming more and more like Him, and shunning the sins of our own flesh and of the world. Justification is purely the gift of God's grace to those who believe, applying to their account the payment for sin paid by Yeshua through His death, His resurrection, His ascension and intercession. Because the debt of sin has been paid, God declares those who are in Messiah to be eternally righteous in His sight. As He is, so are you in the world. Speaking of the believers, and since He is the judge of all the universe, no one can overturn his legal declaration of righteous for all those for whom Yeshua died. Further, the inevitable fruit of being justified is a progressive sanctification, meaning that the child of God will inevitably progress in more and more overcoming the sinful nature and living righteously in this world through the power and enablement granted by the indwelling Ruach as the fruit of Yeshua's intercession for all who are His. Now, the scriptures don't give us any timeline that everybody's true believer is going to make this much progress in this much time. And No. There are those who we, any of us, may take three or four steps forward and two or three steps back. But the point that I'm making here and that the scriptures are clear on is that we have, if we have been truly born from above, if we truly are a child of God and have been declared not guilty, by God Himself, then the work of the Spirit within us will bring us more and more into conformity with Yeshua or who He is and what He wants and what He desires. This is the work of the Spirit. And the analogy that's given to us or the uh, description that's given to us in the Scriptures is that any branch that's, that's on the tree will bring forth fruit. If it doesn't bring forth fruit, what happens? It's lopped off. What does that mean? Every true branch brings forth fruit. And what's the analogy? Every true believer brings forth the fruits of the Spirit and grows in those, becomes more attuned to that. And the, and the, the fruit of the Spirit more and more characterizes the believer's life. Now, God is the ultimate judge. And we leave that to Him. We have no right to do that. We can't see the heart. But He can. And He can, He knows whether the fruit is genuinely the work of the Spirit along with the agreement of the believer uh, in whom the Spirit dwells or whether it's just something for show. So He is the one who knows the heart. So, this is the inevitable fruit of being justified. And what is it? Progressive sanctification. Being more and more set apart from the world and sin and unto God. Thus, when Paul writes in our verse, work out your own salvation, he is describing the process of sanctification. That is, becoming more and more like Yeshua. Winning the battle against the sinful nature and progressing and living out the righteousness which God has granted us in Yeshua. In short, 
sanctification is becoming more and more who we truly are in the Messiah Yeshua. Now, the reason I put the own in brackets there, uh, the NASB translation doesn't have that. But the Greek actually would emphasize this. In the phrase itself, the Greek word te huton, translated your in the NASB, work out your salvation, actually emphasizes oneself. And the fact that the definite article, the word the, is added, makes this even stronger. The point simply is this. No person can work out the sanctification, that is, the fruit or result of genuine salvation, for someone else. Surely we can encourage and help each other to grow in being set apart unto Yeshua. But ultimately, growth in sanctification must be the desire and the ongoing decision of each redeemed individual. We could use a illustration. Sometimes, I well, I wish that someone else could uh, diet, go on a diet for me. You know, I'd like to lose 25 pounds. Could you help me with that? Yeah, okay. Are you going to lose 25 pounds? Yeah, that'll be for me. No, that isn't. Everybody laughs and says, no, that's an impossibility. Well, in the same way, it's an impossibility for my own sanctification to be accomplished by someone else. I must say yes to God. I must say no to the flesh. I must discipline myself in the means of grace, which are what? Prayer the study of the Word, and fellowship with other believers. And personally, I think that this the third one, uh, fellowship with other believers, is becoming less and less thought to be important for one's sanctification in our day and age. It's all very scientific. You know, if I read my Bible for so long, if I pray for so long, then I'll, you know, I'll get better and better. Well, the way that we get better and better is to learn to love one each other and to help each other grow in the things of God. So, this point simply is this. No person can work out the sanctification, that is, the fruit or result of genuine salvation for someone else. Surely we can encourage and help each other to grow in being set apart unto Yeshua, but ultimately, growth in sanctification must be the desire and the ongoing decision of each redeemed individual. How are we doing in this? Well, that's what Paul is asking us to ask ourselves individually. And I hope that as we come to just once again uh, try to grasp the love of God for us, that it motivates us all the more to put into our life the things that will enable us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit and to put away from ourselves those things which would drag us down. Well, that ultimate sanctification is the inevitable outcome for all who are truly saved is taught in the Scriptures. Indeed, there are statements of Scripture which describe sanctification as having already been fully accomplished, now, some would say, well, see, that means we can become sinless. No, the point is is that it's saying it's as good as already accomplished because it's an inevitability. One day, this mortal will put on immortality and sin will be no more. 
Well, this indicates that the believer's final and full sanctification is as certain as if it had already been accomplished. And yet, as our text emphasizes this sanctification is something that is likewise the participating work of the believer empowered by the Ruach himself. It's not rely and relax. It's have faith and obey. We read in 1 Corinthians 1-2, To the ecclesia of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Messiah Yeshua. That's a past tense. Saints by calling with all who are in every place call on the name of the Lord Yeshua Messiah, their Lord and ours. Again in 1 Corinthians 6-11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Yeshua Messiah and in the Ruach of our God. Now some might say, well, this, this means temporary or something. But still, it's, it's, it's put in a past tense as though it's finished and done. Why? Because ultimately, everyone who is truly born from above, that's where we will be. Ultimately, we will have full sanctification. Husbands, love your wives just as Messiah also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So these are all as though it's finished, but it's because that is the goal that Yeshua promises to bring us to that, that end, to that wonderful end, the goal of being fully set apart to him. The theological truth we learn from this is that our ultimate and final sanctification is secure and inevitable. But God has ordained that the process of final sanctification will also involve our participation. So, the theologians would call it definite or complete sanctification and progressive sanctification. It's two sides of one coin. Thus, both of these axioms are true. Persevere we must. Persevere we will. In other words, one who is truly born from above will never fail in their ultimate faith. Now, we might be weak in our faith. At times, we might even, some might even deny their faith, but it doesn't mean that they can't find repentance as God grants it. John Murray gives this succinct definition of sanctification. When we speak of sanctification, we generally think of it as the process by which the believer is gradually transformed in heart, mind, will, and conduct, and conformed more and more to the will of God and to the image of Christ, until at death the disembodied spirit is made perfect in holiness, and at the resurrection his body likewise will be conformed to the likeness of the body of Christ's glory. It is biblical to apply the term sanctification to this process of transformation and ultimate confirmation. So, Paul says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, when he says, work out your own salvation, the very next thing he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here Paul brings us back to his opening statement in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until, or with a view to, the day of Messiah Yeshua. This truth is taught throughout the scriptures that God is the creator both of the physical world as well as the spiritual reality of the elect 
who are drawn to faith in Yeshua, granted the gift of faith and enabled by the hand of God to overcome the sinful flesh and to be a living trophy of God's omnipotent power and love. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Yeshua Messiah, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, some people don't like to talk about this, but the scriptures are clear. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be his children. And Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God is the one who drew us. God is the one who chose us. God is the one who gifted us the ability to be in his family. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. No, we didn't muster up repentance. Now, it doesn't mean we were robots. By no means. But God was the one who granted repentance. And, of course, the well-known Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, as we mentioned earlier. In our verse, Paul begins where one must begin if describing one's choice to receive Yeshua as one's Savior from sin and as one's Redeemer for eternal life. For he makes it clear that both to will and to work are of his pleasure. As Calvin notes regarding the phrase, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, he writes, there are in any action two principal departments, the inclination and the power to carry it into effect. In other words, we have the idea, and then we do it. Both of these, he, that is Paul, ascribes wholly to God. What more remains to us as a ground of glorying? <laughs> In other words, can we take credit for this? No, nor is there any reason to doubt that this division has the same force as if Paul had expressed the whole in a single word. For the inclination is the groundwork. The accomplishment of it is the summit of the building brought to a completion. The mystery, of course, is that God, in his infinite wisdom and omnipotent power, decreed that by his sovereign will he would bring to himself a host of people that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, and language group. That's Revelation 7.9. And in the certainty of the Almighty's plan and purpose, he enabled all whom he would redeem to accept him through the message of the gospel. Yet, as Calvin has noted, such ability to accept his gift of salvation gives no one a platform for pride, for even this ability is a gift from God, as our text plainly teaches. It is God who is at work within the elect, drawing each one to himself through drawing them to him and granting them the gift of faith. In all of this, the elect are not passive, but active through God's grace. As Murray writes, No text sets forth more succinctly and clearly the relation of God's working to our working. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our work suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. No, God works in us as we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. 
All working out of salvation on our part is the effect or the result of God's working in us, not the willing to the exclusion of the doing, and not the doing to exclusion of the willing, but both the willing and the doing. And this working of God is directed to the end, that is the goal, of enabling us to will and to do that which is pleasing to Him. So here, once again, we are met with this inexplainable reality. God is the one who drew us. God is the one who gave us the desire. God is the one who gave us the faith to, to, to exercise. And yet we had to exercise it. It is a cooperative work, but it all begins with Him. And it ends with Him, for everything that He intends will be brought to pass. And all of this is to fulfill His good pleasure, it says, for His own good pleasure. Consider the love of God and how it transcends our ability to fathom or explain. For He, being in need of nothing, put His love upon those who would, apart from His work of love, deny Him and live a self-centered existence. And He did this for His good pleasure. You could say it maybe more <laughs> in a modern way. He got great satisfaction out of this. Really? Could he not have created a whole new human race for his own pleasure? But what do you think it is? I think it is this. It is that in this indescribable love, he showed himself to be the God who is love. In other words, he demonstrated the fullness of one of his divine attributes by loving those who otherwise were unlovable and bringing them to himself forever. So this defines the love of God, that he would eternally rejoice over the saving of sinners, for it is a love that is entirely placed upon helpless beings who, when so loved, will forever be in eternal fellowship with him. Okay, well, that's where we will end for this evening, and I'm glad you were with us. look forward to being with you again next week, Lord willing, and I hope you'll have a good week, and may the Lord's blessing be upon us all as we seek to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah, Yeshua.